great stuff. Well, if you've got your Bible, then turn to Habakkuk. I've misplaced my Bible somewhere, and this Bible is exactly the same. Same thing on the same page, but I feel lost. I don't think I've ever preached from a Bible that isn't that Bible. Um, so there's no underlining or anything in this, which is a bit odd, but it's page uh, 785 if you've got one of our church Bibles. We're carrying on uh, looking at Habakkuk and uh, how God speaks to him, through him, for the benefit of his people. And we're going to hear something more of that this morning. Um, it is getting to that time of the year where we're starting to think a little bit about holidays and and getting away and I know a few of us are heading away for a few days this week and one of my favorite things to do uh, when we go away is uh, to go in the water like it's my favorite place on earth is being in the sea I just love being out in the waves I love just looking out and not being able to see an end to to creation as I look out and often when we go away when we go on a beach holiday I like to um, try a bit of surfing um, and uh, Elizabeth will tell you, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. But there's, if you've ever done it, if you've ever surfed, you'll know that um, sometimes when you're out in the waves, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, a wave might catch you unawares, knock you over and send you wandering, particularly if you're on bigger waves. Uh, that can be an interesting ordeal. And it's happened to me a few times, particularly in the winter when the waves are a bit more uh, frequent and a bit more, uh, have a bit more energy than they do in, in the summer. It's happened a few times where a wave's taken me out and, it, and the wave, the force, the pressure of the wave pushes you under. And there's a few moments, it feels like minutes, or it's probably just a few seconds where you're under and you're fighting to try and get back up and it feels like a bit of a battle. You're not sure. Morning, you can come in if you want, if you want to come and sit down. Um, it feels a little bit like you're, you're just fighting it against the pressure, against the force, but eventually your, your head emerges and you're able to breathe. It's a, it's a scary few seconds while you're down there. And if you're not experienced, if you're not a strong swimmer, it can be a dangerous place to be. In fact, you probably shouldn't be surfing at all if you're not a, a strong swimmer. It wouldn't be recommended. Because when those things happen, you are fighting against the elements. You're fighting against a force which is greater than you. We forget often that a, a, a square meter of water weighs a ton. That's a big force that's coming towards you. And there are times that I've experienced and there'll be times that you've experienced if uh, you've been out in open water where sometimes it just feels like you're struggling to keep your head up keep your head above the waves. Habakkuk, this prophet that we're uh, getting to know a little bit over these uh, few weeks, and Judah, God's people, who he is uh, one of, are facing one of the greatest struggles that they will ever face. So we've seen so far that Habakkuk has experienced the glory days of Judah. He's experienced just all the, the, all the uh, revival that God's people experienced, coming back to God, coming back to his word. But then he's experienced the other end of the spectrum as God's people have walked away from him and engaged in sin and idolatry and wickedness. And God comes and we've heard him say, haven't we, that I'm not idle to that. I'm not going to ignore uh, the sin in my people. I'm not going to ignore witness, uh, uh, wickedness. I'm going to act against it. And God always does that. God will always act against wickedness, injustice, sin. And he comes and does that even to his people, Judah. He says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. These aren't God's people, but he's going to use them to bring judgment on his people. And that is what happens. God's people get taken from their land into exile, into the land of Babylon, a foreign land. 
And for them, it is going to feel like they are swimming against the waves. This is God's people who've been in his land, receiving his promises close to him, experiencing all the the goodness of being in God's community. And that's going to be stripped away from them. And they're going to be taken into a foreign land. And it's going to feel like they're swimming upstream against the tide. It's going to feel like a struggle. You read in Psalm 137, some of you will be familiar with these words. The psalmist, probably Jeremiah, writes a lament. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept. We wept. And it is a heartbreaking psalm as you just hear just the frustration and the, and the angst of God's people as they are in a foreign land in exile, trying to be God's people, but struggling with all of the pressure that is around them. And folks, that is us. In some respect, that is us. We feel like we are swimming upstream sometimes. If you are one of God's people this morning, oftentimes it feels like we are just swimming against the tide. It feels like we are struggling every day. Like, let me just list out some of the struggles that we will all relate to if we are believers this morning. The struggle of being a Christian, living in a secular world, in a culture that constantly and more and more, year by year, is pushing back the truths that we have decided to live by and die by. What about the struggle of just having a consciousness of God outside of this hour on a Sunday morning or outside of gospel communities on Wednesday? Anyone else relate to that? Just that struggle of just needing and wanting to remember God, but just finding that to be a battle like we're swimming upstream. What about the struggle of carrying our sexuality in a a responsible way, in a way that radiates chastity and radiates joy in a culture that is pushing against that? What about the struggle of moving beyond our screens and our devices to a deeper experience of depth and solitude? Anyone relate to that? Just that battle of, I want something more, but we're just just so um, overwhelmed and, and just pulled in by the momentary joys and happiness that we get from flicking on our screens. What about the struggle of trying to find rest in an environment that thrives on overstimulation and excess? What about the struggle of embracing community and church inside a culture which celebrates individuality? What about the struggle of, of moving in a regular rhythm of prayerfulness amongst the constant, constant noise of technology around us? Anyone relate to those struggles? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, we all relate to the struggle of pain and difficulty, which all of us feel the weight of because we live in a broken world. The struggle of anxiety being at the door, depression being at the door, illness always being in front of us, death, especially now being in front of us. We feel that struggle. We relate to that struggle. And it feels like times like we're just trying to keep our heads above water and just breathe. So how do we live well amongst all of that? How do we live well in the struggle? And I don't mean just keeping our heads above water so we can breathe. How do we really live in the midst of the struggle? When I say living, I don't mean how do we accumulate more stuff? How do we find happiness in the things of the world? How do we have a, a good family, a good home? a good? I don't mean that. That's all temporary stuff. How do we really live like God who creates us says we should live in a way that, that it looks like flourishing, 
in a way that looks like growth, in a way that looks like a spiritual relationship with our creator, which will not wither, which will not die? How do we live in a way that looks like daily vibrancy? Anyone want that? Yes, Helen, I do too. How do we do that? Let's look at these few verses in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, page 785. This is God replying to Habakkuk. He said, I'm going to judge my people. And we looked last week that he still is a God of his promises and he gives this promise to his people. Habakkuk 2, verse 4 and 5. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Listen to this. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That's just another word for for the place of death. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. How do we live well in the struggle? God just told us. Uh, he kind of gives two answers, actually. How do we live in the midst of the struggle? And he, he presents two people. He says that there is the way of unrighteousness and there is the way of righteousness. There is a way of unrighteousness, the, the man or the woman who, who, who has a sense of uprightness within himself. And then there's the other man or woman who shall live by his faith. And God presents these two contrasting figures to Habakkuk. And he says, really, there's only two possibilities in this world. There is faith unrighteousness or is or there is unbelief and unrighteousness and what we choose will determine how we live now when we say unrighteousness just clear out of your mind all the people that are coming to your mind as we think about the unrighteous man or the unrighteous woman all of us automatically are thinking it's him it's her And maybe if there's no one close enough in your life, our minds go to those greedy city bankers or crooked leaders or people who we know oppress those who are on the margins. Maybe that's who we're thinking of when we think of those who are unrighteous. And God is talking about Babylon here. Babylon are a picture of that. They are the greedy. They are the crooked. They are the oppressors. But he is also speaking to Judah, his people. He's saying you need to choose. There is only two ways to live, a way of faith and righteousness, a way of unbelief and unrighteousness. Jesus um, told a parable in Luke chapter 18. He talks about these two men who come to the temple, a tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee was the religious man. He says that the Pharisee comes in and and he prays out loud. And he says, oh, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. I thank you that I'm not unjust. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I especially thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there. At least I fast every week and I tithe of all that I have. And then the tax collector comes and he just drops to his knees and he says, God, have mercy on me. And God says, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying that the unrighteous man or woman is anyone who assumes before God that they are enough. I don't need God. I do enough good works. I give enough of my money away. I am good on my own. I don't need God. And folks, that could easily be you and I. Coming before God and saying, I'm enough. I'll just work harder. I'll just give more. God says in these verses in Habakkuk, that is the way of the unrighteous. 
If you look down at the passage again, he describes what that looks like. In verse 4, he says, they are puffed up. The, the exact translation is being bloated. Like, you know, when you've just had a little bit too much to eat, a little bit too much to drink, and your belly just aching a little bit, it's really stretching out. He's saying they are bloated, and bloated on what? Pride. On, their, on themselves. They think that they are bigger than God. Verse 5, he says that the unrighteous are arrogant. They are greedy. He gives us a picture of being unsatisfied like death, always wanting more, always wanting the next one. They are unsatisfied. The unrighteous, he says, use people to, to meet their needs. And again, he gives a picture of gathering in the nations to serve themselves. And whether we like it or not, that is the default of every single one of us outside of God. We are greedy. We are selfish. We do think we can do it on our own. And the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Romans says this, no one is righteous. No one is righteous. And as if he's expecting someone to put the hand up and say, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Or, you know, you haven't met Gary. Gary's, Gary's a good guy. Like, he's righteous. And so immediately, immediately after, Paul says, no, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. Before you put your hand up, that includes you. Every single one of us, by our default, are not good enough before God. Before God, we are all unrighteous on our own. And I don't think I need to convince us of that, folks. You see, there's something that our hearts do that help us know that. Anyone ever feel guilty or shameful when we do something wrong? We do. That is a way of of God showing us that, that you're not righteous. The weight that you feel of guilt and shame shows that you are a sinner. That is the product of sin. Guilt and shame are what come from sin. If you look down at verse 5 again, God shows Habakkuk what is the fruit of the unrighteous. He says in the second half of verse 5, he says, the unrighteous are forever restless. Isn't that a horrible picture? Forever restless, never at peace. That is what guilt does, folks. It doesn't give us peace. Grabbing hold of sin, grabbing hold of unrighteousness doesn't doesn't give us peace. It gives us guilt and shame and it makes us people who are restless. And what we do when we take hold of sin and we feel that restlessness outside of God, we try and find things in the world that will give us peace because we don't like feeling guilty. We don't like feeling restless. We don't like feeling shame. And so we go to the things of this world and try those things to try and get rid of our guilt and our shame and give us peace. But then again, you see in verse five at the start there, they don't give us peace. They just end up letting us down. He uses an example of wine. Going to wine to try and find solitude or try and find peace. And, and that might relate to some of us. It might not relate to all of us. But the, the picture is this. When we go to things of the world to try and find something that only God can give us. And when we try and find peace in those things, they will forever let us down. And then you have this relentless cycle of shame and guilt and restlessness. And then tr- trying to find peace in something where it's just leading you into more shame and guilt and restlessness. And outside of God, this cycle just continues of restlessness and restlessness and restlessness until the final destination, which again you see in verse 5, is death. This place of Sheol, which for the Jews who he's writing to was a place that they associated with death. Now, God is using it, if you look down, he says his greed is as wide as shale. He's using it as a bit of a picture to show the extent of the greed, but he's also using it as a contrast. 
Remember, he's putting up these two people, the, the one who lives by faith and is, and is righteous, the one who lives by uh, unbelief and is unrighteous. One leads to life and one leads to death. The Bible is clear, folks. Those who are unrighteous, those who stand before God in their own strength will just receive guilt and shame as we continue to sin. We will experience the restlessness of life as we don't have peace and ultimately that leads to death. Eternal death, a place away from God. And the way that those people try and live in the struggle is to cling on to themselves. It's to cling on to sin and the things of this world to give them what only God can give them. And one day they will stand before God in their own strength. And it will not be enough. But there is another way. The other man, the other woman that God presents. And we read it again. The righteous shall live by his or her faith. And let me just be clear what we're saying when we talk about the righteous. We are not talking about good people. Gary might be a good person. You might feel like you're a good person and you do good things. That isn't what righteousness really means. It means having good standing, right standing. And not right standing in front of anyone in this room. Like I stand before my kids and I am right in front of them. Like I am good compared to them. I would hope that as I stand in front of you, like I have a good standing, I have a right standing. I'd hope that you wouldn't be able to kind of point different things in my life that are particularly bad, but that isn't what it's talking about. It's talking about standing before God. That's what righteousness means. Being able to stand before the creator of the universe and not have a blot of unrighteousness on us, not have a speck of sin on us. That is really what righteousness means. Having right standing before God and every single one of us will lie as if if we say that we're not. Every single one of us cannot do that. We cannot stand before God on our own. We can't. But here's the key. The righteous shall live by what? Faith. Faith is the key, folks. Christian faith is described in the letters of the Hebrews as this, the assurance of things that we hope for and the conviction of things that are not seen. The assurance of things that we hope for and the conviction of things that are not seen. That's what faith is. That's what Christian faith is. And the things that he's talking about, the, whoever writes Hebrews, the things that are being talked about are the promises of God. He's kind of saying similar things. He's basically saying faith shows itself in assurance and conviction of the promises of God. That's what faith is. An assurance and and a conviction of the promises of God which we find in his word. And let me just kind of push push something to the side. A common accusation against Christians is you just have blind faith. No, we don't. Because it's faith in the promises of God. And then we see last week the promises of God speak a better word to us. Our hearts are the ones that we should be suspicious about. The world is what we should be suspicious about. But the promises of God, every time, have proven themselves to be steadfast and true and faithful. And so it isn't blind faith at all. Like we look in God's word and we hear his promises and we see him answering every single one of them perfectly. That's not blind faith. I'll tell you what blind faith is, looking forward and trying to work out where we're going, looking back at history to try and help us out, using science to try and help us out, accumulating, hey folks, accumulating the best brains in the world to try and find out where we're going and then making a judgment on that. 
and saying, well, this is going to happen. That is blind faith, folks. Now, it might be right. It might get us on a right trajectory. But whenever we say this will be, we must take that with caution. But that is never the case with God. What he says will be, will be, period. Faith is taking the word of God and acting on it because it is the word of God. And it's proven 100%. When it comes to righteousness, when it comes to standing before God as righteous, here is the promise that every single one of us can stand on. I am not good enough, but Jesus is. That is a promise that we can stand on. That is a promise that we can cling to. Every single one of us will stand before God. We will, folks. And we must confess we are not good enough, but there is great hope, great joy, great peace to be found in saying, I am not, but he is. This verse that we read in in Habakkuk 2.4 here, the righteous shall live by faith. It's actually quoted three times in the New Testament, in Galatians, Romans, and uh, Hebrews. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans 1, and this is what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'll read it again for us. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's work in the gospel. God's work in the gospel and him sending the son to help us in our problem of sin. Jesus living the perfect life, dying for us on the cross, rising from the grave, saying that it is finished, that, that anyone who comes to me, if they confess of their sins, they, they can have forgiveness, they can have life in his name, sending his Holy Spirit to help us day by day by day, preparing an eternal home with us. God's work in the gospel, folks, is salvation for all who believe. That's what Paul just said. And it's at the cross where all of the sin that we are identified with, our, all, of the sin, all of the sin, sorry, that identifies us as unrighteous, all of that is taken and put onto Jesus. And all of his righteousness is taken and it is put onto us. And the gospel says, God now treats you on, on that basis. God now treats you as you are walking in the righteousness of his son. One who has never done anything wrong. God will treat you on the basis of that. Not on the basis of your sin, on your unrighteousness, but because he looks at you now and sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And that, folks, that's grace. None of us can earn that. None of us can come to God and, and pay him a little bit of good works and say, God, God, surely you, you must be kind to me because I've lived in this way. No, it is all grace. It is a free gift that none of us deserve. That is the gospel. It is given to us not because we deserve it, but because God is a God of love who wants to give his children good gifts. And so we receive Jesus' righteousness as a gift of grace. And that is a promise for all who believe. And if you do believe, folks, you are saved. 
You're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You are saved from death. You are saved from the relentless, just restlessness that you feel day after day as shame and guilt crush you and you can't get rid of it. You are saved from that here and now. And that is so important for us to hear, folks. If you are currently walking in a way of unrighteousness, you need to hear that as a a message of hope. There is hope for you. There is a way for you to walk in righteousness and it comes by grace, the free gift, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he will never let you down and he will never turn his back on you. He's faithful in all of his promises. And so we need to hear, just coming back to that verse from Romans, that that we are saved through faith. But he also said this, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So there is a faith that saves us, but But we also need faith in the promises of God to sustain us every day. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been saved by grace through faith. But but it's not like you just park faith in this box and it's like, okay, I'm done with that now. No, you need it every day. Paul says we are sustained by faith. And again, that is not of your own doing. You've seen, haven't we, every week this uh, so far as we've walked through um, Habakkuk, that if we're learning anything, we cannot do God's stuff. We cannot kind of conjure up faith on our own. Faith is a gift from God. How does it come to us? Well, back in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ Jesus. As we're struggling just with all of those struggles that we talked about at the start of our time together this morning, I want to just bring us to a place of seeing, folks, we need faith. If if we're going to have life in the midst of the struggle, like real life, like Jesus promises, we need faith. And how do we get that faith? Well, Paul says it comes by hearing. And hearing the word of Christ Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. Are you? Are you hearing the words of Christ Jesus? Are you studying the words of Christ Jesus? Are you meditating on the words of Christ Jesus? Are you soaking in his words? That's the gospel. Are you soaking in the gospel? Here's the encouragement. When when faith is exercised, it it kind of becomes like second nature. So let me ask you a quick question. When you walked in this morning, did anyone kind of get under the chair and check the old, check the bolts and check the frame just to make sure the chair was okay before you sat down? Anyone? No, this isn't a trick. I haven't put a booby chair out there that's going to fall underneath you. Don't worry. None of us did that, did we? But downstairs, there's a few babies downstairs, right? And if you, maybe not at their age, but maybe kind of six, 12 months ago, you watch a baby trying to sit on a seat. It's, it's good entertainment. Like they'll, they'll just uh, tentatively get down and maybe get one cheek on, one cheek off, and then they'll fall over. And then what do they do? They try again. And they keep trying and they keep trying until eventually they don't even think about it. They just walk in like you and I and just plunk their bottoms down on the seat, knowing that it's going to carry their weight. That is them exercising faith. This is you exercising faith. Albert Allen Bartlett, who's a physics uh, professor. Anyone know him? No. 
Okay, that's fine. Uh, he's a physics, it doesn't really matter to be honest, but you can take my word for it. He's a physics professor and he says this, it's quite famous, uh, apparently not, but I thought it was quite famous. A famous uh, quote, he says this, the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand exponential function. Stay with me, I'll explain it. The greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand exponential function. We've all seen an exponential graph. We saw it at the start of COVID, right? Things kind of taking a steep kind of curve up that way. It's, it's him describing um, the idea of compound interest. Okay, stay with me. I know some of you, are, I don't even get that. Compound interest. Has anyone ever had a savings account or an ISA? Yes. I appreciate this isn't working well at the moment because interest rates are absolutely rubbish. But what usually happens in a good economy is you'll put money into your savings account. I'll put a pound coin in and I'll get interest back. I might get 10p if, I'm, if things are going well. I get one pound 10p. And then next year, what do I get interest on? Come on, help me out, guys. One pound 10p. Yes, that's compound interest. And then it can, the more that, that the interest is accumulated and the more it builds up, the more our money grows. That's compound interest. That's exponential growth. And Albert Bartlett is saying, actually, when we fail to understand that, when the human race fails to understand, that actually, the more we pour into something, the better we become at something. Actually, we're struggling as humanity. What he's saying is growth is not static. Doing ordinary things every day, just habits that we do, being in God's word, just reading the gospel, soaking in the gospel, that will bring more and more fruit as we progress. The more we soak ourselves in the gospel, the more we hear those words of Jesus Christ, as Paul said, the more we build our faith, the more we will be able to be grounded and and find steadfast faith underneath us. The more we will progress and the more we will be able to live well in the struggle that is this life. I need to tell us this morning, folks, If we are not listening to the words of Jesus Christ, if we are not soaking ourselves in the gospel, we will find life a struggle. The righteous will live by faith. And how do we receive that faith? How do we grow that faith? Through the words of Christ Jesus. I want to encourage us this morning, pick this up. Now it's half term tomorrow and some of us are tuning off. Pick it up. Read it. Ideally, read it with someone. There's lots of us who would love to read the Bible together, right? Read it with someone. Soak yourselves in the gospel. And that is not duty. This is about faith. This is about peace. Faith is not an abstract theory, folks. We don't just read this to try and get something. Get an emotional correctness. We know that faith is a person. Jesus is the object of our faith and actually when we soak ourselves in the gospel and we hear the word of Christ you know what we're doing we're drawing closer to Jesus we're drawing closer to Jesus let me just close with telling us just the story of a woman who struggled with this issue of just constant bleeding uh, menorrhagia sorry it's called menorrhagia this issue of just a constant um, unstoppable bleeding that she had and it went on for 12 years and she went to different doctors to try and get it sorted out and the culture that she lived in meant that she was cut out from from uh, being with her friends and her family she had to go to a different part of town because this issue that she had it was it was kind of marking her as being someone who was unclean and for year after year she struggled and she tried everything 
She tried everyone to try and fix this problem and nothing would stop it. 12 years of this struggle and then she hears. She hears that Jesus is in town. And so she drops everything and she goes to find Jesus, but she can't get through. There's just crowds everywhere. No one can, can, can get anywhere near. And she's just thinking, if I can just get close to him, if I can just get somewhere near him, maybe he can, maybe he can do something. And so she pushes through the crowds, kind of moving people out of the way, knowing what people are thinking about her, knowing that people think that she's unclean, knowing that she shouldn't really be there. But she pushes her way through and she just sees the back of Jesus. Just sees the, the hem of his garments and she grabs it and she just holds it for a second and then lets go. And Jesus knows in an instant something's happened. He turns around and says, Who touched me? And his disciples say, Jesus, everyone's kind of brushing past you like everyone's touching you. He said, No, who touched me? And he sees it's this woman. And he turns to her and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have, been, you have been healed. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have been healed. She didn't need kind of the big miracle. She didn't need Jesus to sit down and do the big sermon. She didn't need kind of this, all the, all the doctors coming in. Do you know what she needed to be close to Jesus? Just to be next to her saviour. changed everything daughter your faith has made you well folks can I encourage us stay close to Jesus and as we do as we just lap up the truths of his gospel we will feel our faith building and building and building and the struggles might not go away but we will experience more of the life that Jesus has promised us as we hold fast to him Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We do know that this is not of our own doing. We haven't done anything to receive faith. We can't do anything to claim it as our own. Saving faith, the the faith that moves us from being unrighteous to being righteous in you, that is a gift from you. And so we thank you for those who are yours this morning. We thank you that we have received that. We thank you that we have been saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. We also recognise that this, this life that we live in, even if we are saved from the eternal punishment and penalty of our sin, it is hard. It is a struggle. It does feel like at times keeping our head above the water. But you have promised us life. You've promised us that the righteous will live by faith. And so we ask for the, a continuation of that faith. And you've told us how to build that faith by being in your word, by hearing the words of Jesus Christ. And so help us to do that. Help us to prioritize it. Help us, again, as we heard last week, to turn down the volume on all the other voices and to listen to Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that as we do, we draw close to you. We know your presence is with us by your spirit. We know that you are for us. We know that you love us. We know that you are faithful. We know that you have forgiven all of our sins. And so help us to keep building and building and building the faith that you have given to us by grace. Jesus, we thank you for 
for the great healing which you give us. We thank you that you have saved us from sin and death and our great enemy, Satan. And as we feast on this meal in a moment, help us to feel the weight of privilege that we have in being your son or being your daughter, in being the ones that we have received that great promise. Our faith has made us well. Go in peace. You have been healed. Father, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.